Welcome to Med Together. This is a podcast by the people, for the people, as it were. My name is Khana. I'm a med student in New York. This podcast deals with a lot of med school topics, starting from the basic sciences and building its way up, and hopefully it'll be a bit of review that can help y'all consolidate and synthesize important information and maybe phrase it in a way that's easy to understand. By the way, if you're pre-med or you're a nursing student or you're just interested in science medically topics and you're not in healthcare at all, you're totally welcome to. We don't discriminate. If you're interested, you're cool. Ready to rock? Let's do this. Hi there. This podcast is in the cell biology series, and we're going to focus on cell membranes today. I want to start with membranes because they're really fundamental to all the cell biology that we need to discuss in order to get foundations to go on and discuss physiology and eventually pathophysiology. I struggled finding a place to start. It's really hard, um, and I felt like this was the best place or as good as any other place. And there's going to be a lot of cross-referencing and back-referencing and saying, oh, we're going to talk about that later because you can't do everything all at once, right? Okay, so the cell is the smallest structural and functional unit of all living things. And the boundaries of a cell that allow it to be an independent unit and carry out its functions is a cell membrane. In fact, in cell death, if we jump for a second there, see, here I go again, jumping ahead to something we have totally not talked about, but we will. Um, and I assume most people know about, even if we haven't talked about it. The point where reversible injury becomes irreversible injury is a point where there's a breakdown of membrane function. So loss of the structural integrity of the membrane is going to lose to loss of cell viability because when it can't control what's coming in and out, when you lose your gatekeeping function, you're totally losing viability of the cell. Part of its definition and its ability to function is the fact that it can regulate what goes in and out of it. So let's talk about these membrane structures. As we know, our membranes are phospholipids. Phospholipid is basically a carbon backbone, usually glycerol, with appendages. You can picture a glycerol a bit like a capital letter E. That's how I always pictured it, and it kind of works for me in my head. It has something attached to each leg of the E. The top leg is going to be coupled via a phosphate group to some polar head group. And traditionally, you might think of this as like almost like a backward pointing leg, which you can think about it that way if you want. And then the remaining two legs, it's going to be attached to two fatty acid chains. In humans, generally one of these fatty acid chains or tails is going to be saturated and the other one has some unsaturations. Just go back over saturations and unsaturations really quickly. I'm so sorry to do this to you to all of you who hate chemistry, but it's kind of important. So saturated means you have hydrogens all around, only single bonds. Unsaturation means you have a double bond, so you're not saturated with hydrogens. That's all. Because of the nature of these phospholipids, half of this molecule loves water, right? That's the polar part. And the other half hates water. Now, the body is a pretty watery environment, so the lipid tails are kind of out of luck in their, like, you know, hydrophobic little nature. And this characteristic of having half the molecule be hydrophilic and half the molecule being hydrophobic is what makes them self-assemble into a bilayer, where the hydrophobic tails are tucked safely in the middle and the polar head groups face the watery cytoplasm on one side and the watery interstitial space on the other side. So it's important to appreciate that this is a mosaic lipid bilayer embedded with lots of proteins. It's very dynamic. It moves around a lot. The proteins themselves move, the lipids move, they flip in, they flip out. This is not a static structure and membranes are actually becoming more and more important. The more we learn about membranes, the more we realize we don't really know much about membranes and they do lots of really cool things that we don't even know about. But I'm not going to go there because I'm trying to keep this relatively short and relatively like useful, straightforward as much as possible. These proteins that are embedded in the, in the mosaic lipid bilayer, 
They can be catalytic proteins, which transfer either material, like transporters or pumps, or they transfer information, like receptors. Or there's another category of proteins altogether, which is structural proteins, which are basically for cell recognition. Some of these proteins are bilayer spanning, and those are going to be the transport channels, the receptors. They're going to go all the way through. So they're going to have a, a cytoplasmic domain, and then they're going to have a extracellular domain, because they're either bringing information or material from outside the cell to inside, sometimes from inside to outside. And... There are peripheral proteins, which don't go all the way through the membrane. Those are either on the extracellular leaflet for cell signaling, uh, cell recognition, or they're on the inside, um, and they're coupled to membrane protein production in the cytoplasm. So like I said, the membranes are not actually very ordered. They're constantly in motion because they're being held together by their hydrophobicity. There's no chemical bonds. There's no covalent bonds, no, not even ionic bonds. These are hydrophobic interactions, hydrogen bonding. Nothing stops them from moving around within the membrane, so they can shift laterally. Like I said, they can flip in and out, and the tails particularly are constantly shifting and rotating, and the reason why they're doing this is because these tails are trying to avoid steric hindrance. Basically, these tails are a long chain of carbons, of carbon centers, really. And each carbon center wants to be in a position such that its hydrogens are not overlapping with the adjacent carbon center. If you remember, again, orgo, Newman projections, where you can, if you're looking down the axis of a molecule, you can rotate it so that it's more or less sterically hindered. This is basically what these tails are trying to do, is their carbon centers are constantly rotating to try to be the least sterically hindered. So you might think instinctively that unsaturated fatty acids are more stiff because they have a double bond, but actually they rotate a little better because they have less steric hindrance and that's why they have a lower melting point. If you think about it, margarine is a saturated fat, right? It's, it's artificially saturated, but it's, you've basically, you've taken oil which has unsaturations and you remove all the double bonds. When you remove the double bonds, it becomes much stiffer. Um, and it doesn't rotate as well at all, but I digress. Anyway, there's a fair amount of diversity among the kinds of fatty acids you're going to see in the tails, and we don't really know why. We don't haven't been able to like pin down a significance to the, f the fatty acids um, in a particular phospholipid. The head groups are a different story, which we will talk about at another time. The head groups are, we do have a little bit more understanding about the different functions, but in terms of the tails, probably composition has to do with a large degree to what you're eating and the membranes just kind of use the fatty acids they have opportunistically. Like I said, we haven't really found a functional reason yet. We'll get there, I'm sure. Uh, but as of now, as of my knowledge right now, we don't really know. Now this membrane structure that we have here makes it a really good barrier because there's a lot of lipid space in the middle, like in between the polar head groups, and it makes it really difficult for anything to cross the membrane unless it's very small and uncharged. So ions have a terrible time crossing, which is a good thing, because that's how we maintain our membrane potentials, and that's, that's the point, that's what we want it to do. We, essentially, it makes the phospholipid structure relatively impermeable, and this allows it to have selective permeability by opening and closing channels selectively based on the needs of the cell or based on signaling from outside signals, which we'll also get into a more closely. So how, what are these channels that let things in and out? How do they work? Let's talk about them a little bit. So these are some of the proteins that we mentioned embedded in the membranes, the ones we call the catalytic proteins that allow the transfer of material across the membrane. Some of them are going to do active transport, some of them are going to do passive transport. Now their structure is important because structure informs function. I'll say that again because it's important. Structure informs function. And now we have a much more sophisticated method of solving protein structure than we used to. See, getting the amino acid sequence is important but also we figured that out kind of a while ago. 
But knowing how the folding works is really the important part because just a long chain of amino acids, the primary structure doesn't really do anything. Um, the folding and how the protein actually sits in the membrane is going to be driven mostly by hydrophobic interactions. In terms of folding, I'm going to say some of the most common structures you'll hear about are the alpha helix and the beta pleated sheet, which are really hard to describe without a visual, but I think it's generally enough to just know that these are the common secondary structures um, and their structure is made up of hydrogen bonds, essentially. In terms of where the proteins are going to sit in the membranes, amino acid side chains can determine their preference of location. Uh, the more polar side chains are not going to want to be in contact with the interior of the membrane, which you remember is this, are these nonpolar fatty acids. So the membrane-spanning domain is going to have mostly nonpolar and hydrophobic groups. In the head group region, of the protein. We're talking about the, the membrane-spanning protein, so the part that's near the head groups. You're going to get aromatics and kind of like polar-ish side chains, and then the most polar side chains are going to be in the completely extra or intracellular area. So kind of, you know, looking at the side chains and where they're placed can help scientists solve the structure of a protein by knowing kind of where it's going to sit in the membrane. All right, the transporters. So there are three classes of transporters that are really four classes. Classically, it's taught as three, passive transport, primary active transport, secondary active transport. I'm going to tell you, I would really call it four, um, and I'll tell you why. So consider the fact that we have channels and transport proteins within passive transport. And I'm going to try to break this down a little bit. It's a little bit of a fine point, but I think it's important. A channel is just a pore. It weakly interacts with the substrate as it's going through, um, and it's selective for its specific ion but a transporter has a much stronger interaction and it actually binds its substrate, has a conformational change, and then releases the structure on the other side. This brings us to a very, very important point. Most activities of these proteins are carried out by a conformational change in the proteins. I'm gonna say this again because like one of my professors says, everything that's important will be repeated. And this is really, because we're in the basic section and some of these things are so fundamental and you're probably listening with half an ear, I'm going to repeat this. The activities of the proteins are carried out by a conformational change in the proteins. It's really, really important that the proteins are able to have these conformational changes. These changes are caused by ligand binding or changes in voltage for the most part. Okay, let's go through the types of transporters quickly. And there are a lot of ways to kind of classify them in your head, but I think there are two useful frameworks to think about. We're going to think about channels versus carriers and passive versus active transport. So the first simplest, you know, your basic, basic type that we're going to talk about is the passive channels. By the way, all channels are passive. So this is going to be something like the sodium or potassium channels that are involved in action potentials. They're opened by a change in voltage and they just allow the ions to flow through down their concentration gradient it's not really involved at all. The second type, and again, this is this fine differentiation here, because this is also passive transport and you're also moving down a concentration gradient, but the protein is a carrier protein. It is not a channel protein. What that means is it's actually acting as an enzyme. It's catalyzing this movement of the substrate across the membrane. So no, en no energy is being consumed, so it's still considered passive, but it's actually involved versus the channel, which is just an aqueous pore that lets this, the substrate kind of wobble through. So what the carrier protein does is it alternates between two conformations. 
so that the solute binding site is sequentially accessible on one side of the bilayer and then on the other side. So it's going to bind the substrate and it's going to have a conformational change which temporarily occludes the substrate. And then the substrate is going to be released on the other side. And the release of the substrate on the, let's say this is going from outside the cell to inside the cell, right? So it binds the substrate on the outside. Conformational change releases the substrate on the inside. The release of the substrate on the inside causes another conformational change that makes it open up on the outside again, and then it's ready to bring another one through. So there's a recognition, translocation, release. That's kind of the sequence of events. Now the fun ones. These are the active transport ones, primary and secondary. These are both going to be carriers or transporters, also called pumps. Remember, channels must be passive. So any active transport that you're going to have automatically, you have it's a pump, transporter, carrier. These are all synonyms for each other. The difference between primary and secondary active transport is that primary active transport directly uses ATP. So this is like the famous sodium potassium pump. Both substrates are moving against their concentration gradients. ATP is being hydrolyzed to ADP and the energy that is released by breaking that high energy phosphate bond allows them to push against their concentration gradients and be pumped essentially in the wrong direction. In secondary transport, you have one substrate that's going with its gradient and the energy of that movement down its concentration gradient is, be, is used to push the other substrate against its gradient. And because the fun just never stops, we have two subtypes here too. We're gonna have co-transport where both are moving either in or out, but they're moving in the same direction. Or we're gonna have counter-transport where one is moving in and one is moving out. I'll give you an example. In heart muscle, there is a calcium sodium counter-transporter that allows some sodium into the cell with its gradient and it pumps calcium out against its gradient. This is one of the ways that the cell clears its, its calcium, which is super important. We're gonna talk about calcium a lot and calcium getting cleared from the cell is really, really important, but we'll get there. Anyway, that's secondary active transport and that's a counter-transporter, also called an antiporter. Another example, and this is gonna be the other kind, this is gonna be the co-transporter, is your SGLT transporters, which you have in the intestines and in the kidney but speaking specifically about the intestinal ones, these are used to get all the glucose out of, you wanna extract the maximum amount of glucose out of your meal. So initially, when the glucose is coming in, it can go with its concentration gradient because you have more glucose in the food than you do in your cell. But as you reach equilibrium and then you go beyond it, when you wanna kind of pull out the last bits of glucose from that meal, you use the SGLT transporters. What those do is, again, they allow sodium in with its concentration gradient, and that kind of pulls the glucose in along with it. So this is a co-transporter or a symporter of sodium and glucose. Okay, that's it. We made it. Wrap up. Membranes are made of phospholipids embedded with proteins. They provide a selectively permeable barrier that allows the cell to dictate what goes in and out and maintain a membrane potential, which we'll discuss more. The proteins in the membrane serve lots of different functions, including cell recognition, transport of material, and transport of information. In terms of transporters of material, we have passive transport down the gradient, carried out either by channels or carriers, and active transport against the gradient, fueled by ATP in primary active transport, and fueled by favorable transport of something else in secondary active transport. Okay, that is it for now. Until next time, my friends, thank you so much for listening. Feedback is welcome, encouraged. Please reach out to me with comments, questions, concerns, requests, anything. Love to hear from you. Email me at medtogether26 at gmail and I will answer you ASAP. I do not have social media, but you can reach me by email and I'm very responsive. So please reach out and until next time.